right now, though, let's just get started with phone calls. Good morning, Peter. Hey, good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Good. Uh, you know, the, the, the heat that you had with the fall, um, my wife sends out pictures every season to Pete, you know, the friends on the phone and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> all that kind of stuff. A, a beautiful fall picture said, welcome fall with a big asterisk next to it. It said, <laughs> offer not valid in Texas. <laughs> you got a clever lady there. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of clever, we have, we've got, I don't know where to start. I can tell you the, the, the thing. I never heard you say this, and I don't listen to all your program. I listen every morning, though. Um, I, just, I guess I'll come and tell you, have you ever heard of artillery fungus? Artillery fungus? No, I know I know an artillery plant, but I artillery fungus is new to me. Yeah, well, we did some research because in our house, we've been in our house for 26 years, and we have in one section of the house toward the top, we have black black uh, spots starting to appear on the on on the through the sheetrock. Uh huh. Okay. And then what we did is, you know, it, uh, it, it just is one section. And what we did is we, we tried pulling, you know, tried breaking it off, and it wouldn't. It was very, very sticky, and it wouldn't. Bang. There were tiny pinholes. There are actually pinholes that go through the wall. And this is apparently that artillery fungus is, is, has mold spores. And when they they come out, they shoot for 20 feet. Oh, yeah. That's not uncommon. These <laughs> they there are a lot of a lot of different fungi that have evolved to be able to spread themselves a great deal. So, are they producing their spores the in inside into your home or yeah, up so. in the I attic? That, yeah, we just she did some research on the in, internet and she said it's it's it likes wood and there's and there's was mulch a long time ago before that. But it, apparently, it, it, it you know it went up into the house, and then, then the spores shot. They shot right straight through the the sheetrock. Mm, interesting. Never yeah, heard of that. I know that's you know that's totally news to me. I tell you, anytime you have anything appear, you know, on sheetrock or just about anything else, there there's a pretty good product out there called Kills K I L Z. Uh, that the painters use as a stain killer, and it's a, you know, it, it's pretty good at knocking out anything that tries to bleed through or cause any problem. But I, I, I'll make a note to ask Harry Garrett about that, because I know he went through some house mold issues more under the home than uh, above. But I'll ask him, I need to ask Dr. Kirby about that, too, because I know he had uh, uh, he had some issues uh uh, in some oh, in in a bathroom where the the shower was not properly installed and all, but no, I'm I hate to tell you, but uh, that is a new one on me, Peter. I've not I've not heard of artillery fungus by that name, but then again, what I hear about is is more what affects plants than what affects uh, you know stationary things. There are some uh, there are some fungus fungi that are referred to as dry rot. Um, and I've seen this before, and it is something that will actually attack and destroy wood without any moisture. Something that, uh, golly, I saw a bunch of this tearing out some old wood in my grandfather's greenhouses years ago. But it may be related. That's the problem with common names. We don't usually use, uh, well, people don't usually use the scientific names because they're so... Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> so long and hard to remember, but, you know, dry rot artillery fungus could be the same name for two different things, but I'll have to research that a little bit. And uh, I'm trying to think who to tell you would be the best to give you more information on it. Um, uh, 
I it, you might want to call one of these remediation companies that uh, comes in when you have damage from water damage or you know fire smoke things like that. If anybody in town knows about that, and there are two or three good ones out there, but that is probably who I would call to get a little bit more information on it immediately. But uh, um, I'll have to do a little research on it. Uh, that's that's a new one on me. Yeah, well, um, we don't have any plants in the house, so there's nothing in the house that sure. does that. And my wife says she's also noticed it on the plants outside underneath the leaves. So, you know, like the, the same kind of spots that under... I you know. I would find it hard to believe that uh, the same thing would affect a dry wood as a living plant. Now, mm. um, the spots underneath the leaves on what kind of plants? Oh, you got is there just... Well, ah, you're asking the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, they've been it's, out there for a long time. Okay, let me ask you this. If it's something on the bottom of the leaf, if you rub it with a fingernail, does it flake off, or is it something that is strictly internalized in the leaf? No, I think I think it... I think it's hard to take off because it's it's like it's just like a sticky thing underneath. Well, if it's a sticky thing underneath, you're probably looking at scale, something that you can easily control. There's a product mm. out there called Spinosad soap. Uh, there's another product called Neem that will take care of this very quickly, very safely. These products are both very safe to you and very effective. But uh, mm. um, just because. You know, one type of fungus has evolved to live off of living tissue, the other uh, to live off of dead cellulose. I'm quite sure it's not the same thing on a live plant that you're that mm. you're experiencing on uh, on dry wood. But on the plants outside, I can tell you that spinosad soap will almost certainly take care of it. Now, it sounds like a scale insect of some sort, especially the sticky, especially the hard to get off the leaves. And what I have to tell you about that one is that the insect itself looks the same dead as it does alive. You will know you have controlled it when it stops spreading to um, new leaves, when you no longer see it uh, encroaching on the new growth. But um, you'll spray it. The sticky will go away. But uh, w even after you kill it, this, this little bug, this armored insect, which builds sort of a hard shell over itself attached to the leaf, it's going to look the same dead as alive. If you scrape it vigorously, it'll it'll become powdery instead of uh, being liquid filled. But uh, I can I can take care of the problem on the plants. Uh, the the house is a different thing. I've got a couple of builders I can call too to ask if uh, they are familiar with this. Uh, one friend up in Fredericksburg does a lot of remodeling, especially in older homes. So I try to give David a call today and see if. Uh, See if he's ever heard of it, but that's uh, that's a new one on me. But that's an old one on the outside plants. That one I can help you with. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, it was it appeared when it, in the spring when we had all that rain. It was uh -huh. extremely wet, and, and uh, the good news is that we, you know, well, I mean, the good news from that aspect now is that we don't have any rain. So it's hopefully this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we need some rain now. Oh, def desperately. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's the problem with these. A, a spore is a fairly tough little. Uh, thing that Mother Nature created to help that plant survive until the conditions are ripe for it to begin growing and flourishing once again. So um, something you probably need to get, take care of. I would be wiping down walls anywhere in the vicinity with uh, probably concentrated hydrogen peroxide or something. You don't really have to go to, you know, anything stronger in most cases. But uh, um, get some spinosad soap. That'll take care of the problem on your plants, and we'll see who we can find to help you on your house. All right. I appreciate that. Thanks for the time. Oh, it's always, always a pleasure, Peter. Thank yeah. you, sir. All right. Bye-bye.
All right, it's going to be Fidel and Mimi and Jesse, and Fidel is up next. Good morning, Fidel. How you doing, Bob? Oh, I'm just dry like you are over in uh, Bandera County, but uh, looking forward to a little bit of a break in temperature if the weathermen are at all accurate this week. So, hey, it's good today and going to get better. Well, the west side of Medina Lake right now is 71 degrees, so it's real nice. <laughs> well, yeah, that's not bad, but they're talking down in the 50s uh, here by midweek, and uh, that's going to be even nicer. Got to pull out the Long Johns. <laughs> I don't think I go quite that far. They went to Wyoming and back with me, but uh, yeah, it's just gonna maybe a long maybe a long sleeve shirt to start the day off with. But what's yeah. going on in your world, Bob? Uh, I have a, a peach tree uh, question. Uh, I've got a June Gold. That's a variety of peaches that I have. Mm-hmm. It's a good tree. Uh, tree is about yeah about four years old, and this last season I had the best crop ever. Not only the size of the peaches, but the number of them. Uh-huh. But I did notice that it flowered like in three different stages. Mm-hmm. So I had, uh, you know, big peaches and medium ones and <laughs> tiny ones uh, at the same time. But uh, I'm getting ready to do a little work around my yard. And when is the best time to go ahead and prune the uh, this particular variety of peach tree? Well, all peach trees, I prune them after the leaves drop off, which is typically mid-November, you know, so much is dependent on weather, but I want them to be, and the reason I do that, Fidel, is that if you prune while they, before they go into their semi-dormant state, then it stimulates new growth, and the last thing you want is a bunch of new leaves coming out just as we get into the colder weather, so I'm going to wait until the leaves have dropped from the trees, and any time from then on until probably mid-February when those buds start swelling, uh, any time in that time frame is going to be a good time to do your, your thinning. I'll call it thinning rather than pruning on a mature tree. Yeah. Okay, well, that answers my question. You all have a good rest of the day. Well, you do the same. It's always good to hear from you, sir. Thank you. All right. Uh, bye. All right. Let's head south down Lake Corpus Christi Way. Good morning, Mimi. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, tell me everything I need to know about killing nut sedge. I've got a... <laughs> Pretty good crop of it this year. Well, and that's probably because we all had such a moist spring and then, of course, turned off dry. Is this in your grass, your flower beds? Where are it's you? It's a flower bed that I'm redoing. Okay. Um, first of all, I, one thing I'll tell you about nutsedge, it is that it doesn't hurt anything. We've been conditioned to think it's ugly and that somehow we're a failure if we don't excuse me, if we don't take care of it, but nutsedge, well, Malcolm Beck once told me that the healthiest nutsedge he, or the healthiest corn he ever saw was growing in a field absolutely crammed full of nutsedge. So this is not something, it's something that, you know, becomes unattractive, but certainly doesn't hurt your plants. Now, nutsedge is a, oh, it's basically a water-loving plant. So in the wet times we had last spring, there's not a lot that you could have done to control it. Now that we're in drier times, usually we can knock it out with nothing more than molasses or anything sugary that really stimulates a lot of microbial growth. Um, And of course, molasses will not hurt your uh, existing plants in that flower bed. There's some synthetic chemical products that I don't like there you sell something called image another one called manage that they 
uh, you know, sell you for controlling nutsedge, which will be will be damaging to other things. But we just make a fairly concentrated molasses solution, somewhere between uh, usually about a quarter of a cup of molasses and a gallon of water. Water the nutsedge with that, drench it pretty good with that, repeat it in about two weeks, and it's not like it happens all at once. Just the nutsedge will turn brown and just kind of rot away. You'll just suddenly notice that it's not there anymore. So molasses is really all you need, and it's actually going to help uh, your your good plants. I don't know what you have in that bed, whether you have some of your roses or other things. But at a quarter of a cup per gallon, molasses is not going to hurt them. But it will create so much intense microbial activity in the soil uh, that the nutsedge just rots and goes away. It just can't handle that much uh, good life. Yeah, I knew it, you used the molasses, but I couldn't remember the 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 amount. Yeah, so I've heard. I've, yeah, but a quarter cup per gallon. You can go a little over that if you want, but do not exceed a half cup per gallon. I've heard people putting out dry molasses, but in all honesty, I don't think it is as effective in this case uh, as the liquid molasses is. And this is one place where you're probably going to have to make several watering cans full because you're not just putting it on the foliage. You're actually uh, kind of watering it in with it. So, Hopefully it's not too big a flower bed, but uh, it's it's more than just a foliar spray. In this case, we want to kind of soak it down into the soil where those little nuts down at the bottom are. And um, but it works very very well in dry weather. Back in the spring, or if we should move back into a really really wet spell, uh, about all you can do is just wait for it to dry out. The other thing that I before we learned about the molasses in a couple flower beds, I was fighting nutsedge in. I put in a good deal of mulch, and it's kind of like the plant just grew up and into the mulch, which very was very loose and open, and then I could just, you know, grab and pull up one plant and pull up all little shoots that came out for, you know, a foot all the way around. So that was just physical control. The mulching will always help your beds, uh, but the molasses will kind of get to the root of the problem, so to speak, and should take it out completely. Okay, I'll try that then, but I know the places where I have you know, consider about amount of mulch, mm -hmm. they are easy to pull up. You know? <laughs> Unlike those other areas where they just break off. I, this is full, this one bed, and yeah. I, I'm taking everything out almost. So um, I'll work on that then today. Very good. And just any kind of molasses, you certainly don't have to get it at the grocery store or any farm store, feed store, nursery, probably going to have it uh, at a lot cheaper rate. And it, it doesn't matter what kind of molasses. It's all the sugar in there that stimulates the microbe. That's what we're trying to encourage, and that's what's <laughs> going to knock your nuts edge out for you. Okie dokie. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye. All right. Uh, let's see what Jesse's up to. Good morning, Jesse. Oh, hi, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Great. Thanks. Um I had a question about corn. My uh, sweet corn tasseled early, and I wanted to know why that was. Probably weather. Um, is this some you've got in the ground now, or are we talking what uh, happened back in the spring? Yeah, I, I planted it on August 15th, yep. and uh, it tasseled early, and I guess it was the weather, you think? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt that it's, it's partly weather. It's partly day length. Um, it's, you know, corn is basically a big grass as it were 
and uh, or uh, and when we have this much heat, when we have the days, you know, very long, but starting to decrease uh, as they do from the middle of June on, uh, this signals the plant that hey, the growing season is going to come to an end. You better make seed if you're going to. It's also the reason that very few people grow corn in the fall. You can grow corn. You will be very rare to get as large a ear or uh, you know quite the same quality you get in the spring, but it it can be done. Okay. Um, I also uh, wanted to try and experiment and grow some winter wheat. Um, I'm in San Antonio. When was mm-hmm. the best time? When's the best time to do that? Pretty much any time now. We should. Uh, we're supposed to get our first uh, cool front uh, coming in around Monday, Monday night, depending what part of the area, listing area you're in. And just about any time after that. Uh, of course, we would love to have uh, love to have a little rain along with it, but this hard to say at this point if it's going to come in wet or dry. But temperatures are going to be right within the next week or ten days that you could start planting it. Okay, and uh, my final question is: uh, bok choy hardy in San Antonio? Um, <laughs> it depends on the winter. You know, I've seen winters when we hardly had a freeze all winter long, and I've seen. Winters when we went into single digits. Bok choy uh, is, in my experience, is hardy down into the low to perhaps mid 20s. Um, I know up in Bernie where I live, 23, 24 degrees bothers it. 28, 29 degrees does not. So most winters, uh, bok choy should do just fine in San Antonio. But that's why I use the word typical. Never use the word normal when I talk about Texas right. weather. In a typical winter, bok choy will be hardy in San Antonio, and that goes whether you grow in the big one or whether you grow in, I like especially a little baby bok choy where you can harvest a whole little plant at a time. I have some right. Asian friends that, uh, I shouldn't say that. I know that's politically correct, but my, this is my friend Shu Yu, and she used to say, I'm not Asian, I'm Chinese. So my Chinese <laughs> friends from Taiwan that taught me a lot about bok choy, I love that little baby bok choy where you just harvest the uh uh, the entire plant, and uh, it grows extremely well. But if we do have a chillier spell, um, you may need to put a little insulate or something over it for a night or two. Uh, I'm sure not going to get in the weather forecasting business, but having been in this part of the world for quite a few years, it's been my observation that when we have a really hot summer, sometimes we have at least a few nights of uh, colder than usual in the winter months. So have some insulate handy, but... Uh, um, it should be a very good wintertime crop for you here. Great. Well, thanks for your help, Bob. It's always a pleasure. You get out and have a good weekend. You take care. <laughs> thanks, Jesse. <laughs> Bye. All right. Uh, back to the top of the board. It's uh, Mary's turn. Good morning, Mary. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have a, I have a lavender plant uh, that is just. It's probably about four years old, and it's just been beautiful. It's never bloomed. About a week ago, it just, and I never water it, it started declining, and half of the plant is dead now. I was wondering if there was any way that I could revive it. Uh, I assume that it's just been so dry, and mm-hmm. I just, you know, never watered it. Right. and But this has been, oh gosh, one of the driest late summer periods we've ever had. Um, when it gets too dry, what happens is a lot of the little 
oh, they call them root hairs that are actually the very, very fine growths that come off of the major roots, which are what take up the water and nutrients and things like that. Those uh, simply die, and it the plants, when they get too dry, they're always going to look worse before they look better. I would give it a thorough watering. I would add some Garrett juice uh, or this product called Super Thrive. Super Thrive is not totally organic because it has a little bit of a rooting agent in there, but uh, it's something that's not, not one of the bad ones. There's nothing in there that's damaging. But uh, I would water them very thoroughly, and I would add some Super Thrive and or some Garrett juice to that, and then just kind of wait and see. It's not a disease. It's not anything that's going to spread throughout the plant, but it just kind of depends on uh, you know how dry, how damaged the root system got and that uh, after the rain shut off in mid-June. Uh, is, do you know any, have any idea what variety of lavender this is? Because there are about 15 different no, ones. No, it's, it's, it's a pretty light green. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. Uh, my neighbor gave it to me, so I'm okay. not real sure exactly. But it's just grown beautifully, and I'm, I'm just so sad. Um, <laughs> well, um, plan on watering if you plant or when you plant more. I know you like this plant. You'll probably plant more of it. But when we get dry, I mean, lavender demands perfect drainage, but it doesn't necessarily want to stay just, you know, bone, bone dry. It's not really what I'd call a xeric plant. So if we don't get rain, plan on watering it every 10 days to two weeks, and uh, you'll avoid this problem. Obviously, yours yours hung in there for a long time because we haven't had any decent rain since back in June. But uh, I would definitely go ahead uh, today and water it thoroughly. Uh, with Gear Juice or Super Thrive, and then we're just going to have to watch and see. Okay, well, I did uh, last week when I noticed it. Um, one day it was beautiful. The next day it was uh, just it just looked so terrible. Sure. So I got a gallon. I did the Super Thrive in it, and I, I poured all of the Super Thrive on it. Should I do, like, one gallon a week? No, I would. Uh, I would yeah, I would definitely be watering it at least weekly, but... You, we, it doesn't really need to be redone for another 30 days or so. In fact, I might even oh, alternate between right. the Garrett Juice and the Super Thrive. Garrett Juice has more in it. The Super Thrive just seems okay. to have a little magic in there. Interesting story behind the development of that product. But it's, it's the closest thing to uh, creating sort of a reincarnation in plants that I thought were dead that I've ever seen. So I will certainly hope that it works in the case of your lavender. Okay, so uh, go ahead and just once a week, just go ahead and just water it, well, and then I'll do the yeah. I, maybe. I I of course uh, much okay. prefer to feel the soil rather than never try to go by the calendar. But with your lavender, anytime uh-huh. you can stick your finger in and that soil is dry one to two knuckles deep, it's time to water. And of course, that's going to be much more often in the hot summer than it is when the days are shorter and when we have more cloudy weather. So it's not really, no plant uh, really wants to be watered by the calendar. But feel that soil when it's dry an inch or so deep. Time to give it another thorough good watering. Okay. And how do you make it bloom? I guess it depends on the I, variety. I suspect it's normally. the variety. Um, normally it'll be change in day length, but some lavenders very rarely bloom. They're strictly grown for their foliage whereas others bloom very freely. So my suspicion is yours is one that is a very irregular bloomer and uh, probably not a very pretty bloomer. So there's some other varieties of lavender you can plant if you want the flower. Good ones and some of the others are grown more for their foliage. But like I say, there are a bunch of different lavenders out there. 
Yeah, well, this lavender is, the foliage is just beautiful. Everybody comments on yeah, it. So that's, that's what comment. it's grown for. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Bob. You're certainly welcome, Mary. Appreciate the call. All right, well, let's get back to the phone lines while you are dialing in. I'm going to talk to George. Good morning, George. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Hi, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's awful early, but it's going to be a nice Saturday. I have every confidence in it. Right, why, sure. Well, this may be kind of a strange question for you. It's not exactly a gardening. Uh, I've got a, a asphalt gravel roof. Okay. And I've got, I noticed that there's some grass growing up there, and there's also <laughs> a, 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 like a yucca plant that started growing up there. And I need to get that stuff killed out so that the roots don't... Uh, yeah, penetrate down <laughs> down into the roof. Uh, I will tell you that's first time I... that That is a first time for that question. Now, you go out in places in the West and uh, even uh, botanical gardens over in Atlanta, people actually have what they call green roofs where they encourage right. things to grow on the roof for fire protection and conservation and other things. But uh, uh, that's not the situation here. But, George, it's going to be as easy uh, as uh, uh, just using the same vinegar and orange oil we would use, you know, on the grass. There's nothing in that that's it's going to damage your roof in any way, form, or fashion. Uh, my only real uh, word of warning, so to speak, is that when things are really dry, when the, when the weeds have been more or less forced into a semi-dormant state, uh, it doesn't work nearly as well. Um, it, if the weeds are in more active growth and the vinegar and orange oil works very well to kill them completely and very, very quickly. So, um, I'm either going to put this off until we have a little more rain or <laughs> to make it even more ridiculous. I'm going to tell you to put a sprinkler up on top of your roof and water your roofside grass before you spray, because it's going to, it's just going to be a lot easier to kill while it's in active growth. The good news is that while it's so hot and dry, uh, those roots are not actively growing. They're not causing any more, uh, damage to the roof. I, Probably after you get this killed, I would, uh, you know, maybe get a, a roofer to take a look at it and see if they need to apply, you know, a little bit more. Uh, so it's basically so what I would always call, a, uh, the roofers call it a built-up roof. I've always just kind of referred to it as a tar and gravel roof. And um, it, it may be that it'd be a good idea to mop a little bit more tar on there, especially if it's been a lot of years, uh, because the, the heat... And the drought can be as damaging to that type of roof as actually having some of the greenery up there. So um, sure. I, I I would either water or I would just put off until we get back into a little bit wetter period and uh, that stuff greens up. And, and then just that two ounces of orange oil and a gallon of vinegar, a little bit of dish soap in there, um, that's pretty much going to knock everything out for you. Well, what about that? What about that yucca plant? Um, I would cut it off as low as you can. I would be reluctant to, you know, try to pull it out or rip it out because if it does have its roots, and I suspect this has managed to find some cracks in that uh, tar layer, you've probably got roots down underneath there, 
and pulling it up, um, I'm afraid, would uh, give you a spot that you'd have some damage, probably get some water through there. So I'm just right. going to gonna you know put it with put up gloves on brush the gravel back as best you can and then cut the cut it off just as close to being even with the roof as you can uh put a little bit of uh i'd, I'd go ahead and spray it even though it has it doesn't have green foliage I would put a little vinegar and orange oil on there, and then I'd keep an eye on it if anything resprouts resprouts go back and uh, hit it again. Okay, well, real good. Thank you for the information. You're more than welcome. If you do get somebody out to take a look at that roof, you'll probably want to point out to them, kind of red flag, where that yucca plant was growing because they're going to want to pay special attention to get any roots, any organic material out of there just so they get a good seal on there because uh, roof leaks are no fun, and especially when they start damaging and staining sheetrock underneath. So (laughs) you've you've got a unique problem, but uh, I can think of a whole lot worse problems to have. This is one you can correct pretty well. Just if you do it yourself, be very careful up on top of that roof. Okay, fine, Bob. Thank you very much, and have a good day. You do the same, George. Thank you, sir. And goodbye. All right, I'm looking at a pretty much completely open board here, so uh, give me a call. You get right through 210-599-5555. I want to remind you, today we're going to do another fun seminar. We kicked off our fall seminar season last week with uh, fall vegetable gardening. Today's topic is going to be kind of reviving. (laughs) We're going to call this our our fall revival for your yard and uh, what you can do to get that yard back in shape. There are some very definite things you do not want to do, some other things you do want to do. Anyway, that's our free seminar uh, today, 945 over at Shades of Green. Coffee will be on by 9. Seminar starts about 945. You don't sign up for it. You show up for it, um, and they are absolutely free. Um, I had a lot of feedback from people last week about some other seminars they wanted to see later this fall. So, um, yes, we will plan a seminar probably early November on greenhouses, garden rooms, closing in structures, getting ready, um, you know, just as, as more of a permanent way to enjoy growing some things. So anyway, definitely going to do one there. I think we're going to do uh, another seminar on, uh, uh, oh gosh, just, uh, uh, propagation of all sorts from air layers to the proper way to start seeds and cuttings and things like that. So those are two more of the seminars that we kind of put on the agenda after last week's uh, talk. And uh, along with that, of course, we'll have our fall bedding plants and bulbs and things like that. So check out the complete schedule and uh, by all means, come over. If your yard's not looking as good as you want, come over and let me tell you how to get it back to looking uh, it's very best uh, for moving um, forward into the cool weather, which hopefully is arriving this week. Uh, Tracy and Richard have called. There's another line ringing there, so let's talk to Tracy. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good mor- How are you today? I'm doing very well. Doing better now that you've called. How can I help you today? Oh, thank you. Um, I am trying to figure out um, what I can put in front of some rock posts that go into um, a gate that would be kind of like a, a hedge slash evergreen slash flowering in the spring and summer. Is it? Is there something? And how tall do you want them to grow, Tracy? Um, no taller than about six feet. Okay. Um, 
And uh, can you water this area with some regularity, or is this something that's going to have to be yes. a little bit more safe? Yes, and oh, I forgot one thing. This is going to put a wrench in it. Uh, deer resistant. <laughs> you just wiped out the roses I was going to tell you about. but uh, uh, So no roses out where you have the deer. Um, and, no. And, and it is uh, good sun. Yes, it's it's full sun, and right now what is there is butterfly uh, butterfly bush, uh-huh. and it's just very old, and I need to replace it. I mean, it's a it's beautiful there. It looks great there. It sure. grow, grows pretty tall, but it's just old, and I want to replace it. Well, you know, sometimes they. Uh, the the growth isn't as good when they get some age on them. So um, butterfly bush, and of course it freezes back some winters. If you want something that's going to be dependably evergreen, it's hard to beat some of the newer varieties of Sinisa or purple sage, Leucophyllums is botanical name, whatever you call it. Uh, if you want more of a greener foliage, there's one called green cloud sage. If you want more of the greater foliage, there's uh, Desperado, there's Lowry's Legacy, um, and all of these things bloom. They bloom more in response to rain than they do to a certain season, but for pretty flowering, it's really hard to beat uh, the Sinisa. Now, other plants that would do, there is a type of viburnum, which is called viburnum suspensum, also known as Sandanqua viburnum, and it is about as deer-proof as uh, any plant could be. You could always consider planting mountain laurels out there. You may prune them every couple of years to keep them from getting over six feet tall, but mountain laurel is certainly a beautiful evergreen plant, a very drought-tolerant plant, very deer-resistant plant, and it does bloom in the spring, pretty much spring only, but, of course, lots of purple flowers, and uh, mountain laurel's evergreen, so it's going to be another one that would do very well. Um, Those are some of my top choices where you want flowers. Now, um, there are two or three kinds of Yopon holly all the way from the dwarf, which gets about three feet tall, to uh, Pride of Houston, which you can prune to keep it down to six feet. It wants to grow 10 or 12 feet tall, but Pride of Houston Yopon, or if you want something that has uh, some real good architectural interest to it, there's one called Weeping Yopon that's absolutely beautiful and uh, would do extremely well out there. You'll have the benefit of red berries in the fall, but not anything in the way of showy flowers. So um, those are just, you know, a few ideas. Uh, If uh, the color's important, you could plant one of these ones that are grown more for their foliage, and then in front of it, plant some of your uh, deer-resistant perennials, such as salvia gregii or the salvia leucantha, the so-called Mexican bush sage, and then if you want to go one step further in the summer months, you can plant periwinkles out there, which are very deer-resistant. We don't have many wintertime annuals that are deer-resistant, but uh, we certainly have some summertime annuals. And like I say, we do have a, you know, a number of perennials that are going to give you lots of flowers over the season. That salvia gregii, the so-called cherry sage, comes in several different colors. And uh, it can have flowers on it off and on for 8 to 10 months out of the year. Planting that in front of some of these others, um, either flowering or evergreen, you you make an absolutely beautiful entrance out of that spot. Perfect. Um, One of the things that you said brought me to my next question was the uh, winter-type annuals that are deer-resistant. 
there just don't exist. Anything? Not really anything in annuals. They they think pansies. The most deer resistant would be dianthus, um, the sweet william, the car, little carnations, things like that. They are the most deer resistant. And if you're out where you have a you know a a good, healthy, reasonable deer population, you might very well get away with planting them. But if you live in Timberwood Park or Fair Oaks or Hill Country Village where you've got about 10 times more deer than the land can support, they're going to eat everything green in the winter. Gotcha. Okay, and real quick, uh, what bulbs that are uh, deer-resistant that should be planted now that will bloom, I guess, in spring, since there's nothing I can plant for fall or winter? Um, You're probably, some of your different narcissus and daffodils, are going to be uh, the best things that you can plant this early uh, that will give you nice flowers in the spring. And again, if you're just overrun with deer, they may nibble at them. But generally speaking, because they're they are toxic, um, especially the bulbs, the deer tend to leave them alone. But uh, daffodils, narcissus, those are things that can go in this early. Later on, you pr- could probably get away with planting hyacinths, but I wouldn't put them in quite this early. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. Great questions. Thank you for the call this morning, Tracy. We'll talk again. Okay, <laughs> bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Goodbye. All right, back to the phone lines, and Richard is next. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Hey, so I've called before about um, getting some advice on uh, planting some roses, some cut roses, uh, at, alongside my house to right. cover up some concrete. Uh-huh. And so um, I live over here towards Canyon Lake, and I wanted to get your thoughts. I want to I wanna uh, plant these roses around my backyard so they're fenced, but uh, to where they cover up the slab. But my concern is the soil line is only probably, the soil depth probably is only about a couple inches before I start getting either hill country rock and or um, the, I'm, I'm concerned if I plant too close to the slab that I'm going to mm-hmm. have a lot of that base and, whatever sure. they use. So can you talk a little bit about soil preparation? Because I feel like I should go up a little bit uh, just to give them some initial um, soil and, and that kind of thing. So, Probably good idea, but tell me, first of all, how much of that slab is exposed? How much concrete do you have before you start getting up to, uh, and is your home brick or um, some sort of siding? What What's the uh, material? Stucco, yeah, stucco rock. Okay, very good. And how much exposed concrete? A couple feet. Okay, well, that's good because uh, you certainly don't ever bring the soil line up above the level of the slab. In fact, you want to stay a few inches below it for many different reasons. But if you could raise up, you know, 10, 12 inches, it would definitely be a lot better for uh, growing your roses of any sort. Um, it Just really any good soil, your native soil with some compost added to it, I've got a number of roses growing extremely well in, uh, you know, nothing more than just the old Bernie Hill Country soil. Uh, The one rose, one of the prettiest roses out there, but one I would stay away from is your knockout rose because they seem to take about, in my experience, take about three times as much water, and they really do want some soil improvement. So as beautiful as they are, unless you really, really want to work intensively on the bed, I'm going to go with uh, some of the other roses that give you the same beautiful color but without quite so much work. Uh, One of the low ones that I really like is called Martha Gonzalez. 
Uh, it is a red rose. It'll grow three to four feet in height, which should be plenty to hide that concrete. Uh, if you're looking for a bigger one, uh, there's one called Belinda's Dream, which is going to grow more in the five to six foot range. And it's going to be more of a cutting rose. It's a big rose, and it uh, you know produces on a little bit longer stem if you're looking for um, cuttable roses per se. Uh, the Antique Rose Emporium bred a series of roses that they call the Pioneer Roses, and uh, those are some of the hardiest and, um, gosh, just bloom a lot, uh, very, very durable plants. Those might be, you know, others that you would choose among. I think Fanix carries uh, a number of those, but I'm going to stay away from grafted roses. I'm going to stay with own root roses. And, um, you know, I'm going to, like I say, I'm going to build up uh, 8 to 10 inches, uh, maybe even a little bit more if possible. But, gosh, just any good topsoil with some compost added to it is going to grow beautiful roses for you. Yeah, I was afraid just using the native soil, it wouldn't quite be native because it'd all be uh, that material <laughs> they brought in for the slab. But were any of those roses, I know you said it may be challenging to find like a white cut rose, but were any of those roses white by chance? Um, No, but I think you can probably find a white rose called Iceberg. Okay. And um, I, I hopefully you can find that on its own roots. Um, uh, it does... You know, it does grow well. It does produce well. I have to say in the summer months, no white rose is really real happy in the Texas heat. But spring and fall, you should get some beautiful whites out of that one. Okay. And then you said uh, from a selection standpoint, springtime would be best. But when would be the best time to plant them? About two years years ago. (laughs) <laughs> second best time will be as soon as you can find the plants uh, uh okay. so the the availability is a lot better in the spring than it is this time of year but uh um planting them now is uh just you know get all winter to get them established and uh you'll have even prettier blooms in the spring so i'd i'd go to work on this uh project in the very near future okay and one quick other question if you don't mind go right ahead I have like a five foot, one of those uh, trough containers, the five foot by two, um, the metal, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I plant. It's, I have lemongrass in there just for ornamental purposes. But would uh, is, would you stay away from planting any like strawberries uh, with that lemongrass, or do you think I'll be okay? Well, your lemongrass is not cold hardy, unfortunately. Um, you're going to probably dig a few little pieces of it out to keep in pots in protected area through the winter months. But uh, if we have anything like a typical winter, lemongrass will freeze and die completely. It's pretty much an annual herb. So uh, strawberries, strawberries are just, I mean, it's fun to grow strawberries, but they don't, in, in a home situation, they just don't grow and produce a whole lot of berries. So if I'm looking for something that I'm really going to get to harvest from and enjoy a great deal of produce from, probably not going to be strawberries uh for the winter months it might be broccoli cauliflower might be i love leaf spinach uh chard is extremely easy to grow and quite tasty prepared properly uh, in fact any of your greens uh the lettuces the mustards all of those things would grow very easily in that trough um if you are a fan of carrots and radishes and beets and turnips yeah you can certainly plant those and again if you want to plant strawberries this is the best time of year to do it but in terms of uh, amount of produce you're going to get from them, strawberries are one of your lowest production crops, so to speak. 
Okay. Yeah, I got about half of that stuff already planted in, in other raised beds and stuff. <laughs> I was just wanting to fill this uh, fill this trough with something that would be there year round, and and uh, maybe I'll just add some color to it. Uh, well, color to the you can add that. some add add some perennial color to it if you like, but uh, um, there's some herbs that certainly would be beautiful and year round production in there. If you want some with some height, go with one of the rosemaries. Um, if you're looking for other very useful herbs, you can plant thyme, you can plant oregano. Uh, these are perennial herbs. Parsley, of course, is biennial, grows and produces for about 18 months. Um, I don't think a person can have too much mint, either the uh, spearmint, which I refer to as mojito mint, or the peppermint, which I think is a great iced tea mint. Uh, lots of different choices if you were to go with some uh, perennial herbs. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, maybe I'll go with herbs, and I just wanted to make sure. I am in a, I do already have strawberries in there. I just wanted to make sure they're not going to not no. do well together. No, they're okay. not going to be any any uh, interaction between them that's going to be negative in any way. Okay. Thanks for your help. This Great morning, questions, Robert. Richard. I appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. Good morning, Robert. Ooh, let me see here. Did I hit the wrong thing right there? Let's do this. Let's try this one more time. Robert, good morning. Well, good morning. All of a sudden, the line went dead on me. <laughs> well, we got you back. That's the important thing. Yes. Well, it's about bulbs. Okay. And uh, the, you know, when is a good time to be digging things up and separating them and, uh, you know, just general information on the... Of course, I got I planted just a few bulbs some uh-huh. years ago, and, of course, now there there's many of them, so... Okay. Well, as a general rule... We dig and divide bulbs the opposite their season of bloom. So if these are bulbs that bloom in the spring, now is the time to dig and divide them. If they're fall-blooming bulbs, like the oxblood lilies and some of the crinums and things like that, it's better to wait till spring. So uh, the season opposite when they normally flower. Spring-blooming bulbs do now, fall-blooming bulbs do next spring. Oh, well, that's pretty simple. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness that's the only reason I can remember it. Uh, now, once, like now, if I, I start digging them up and, and just, uh, you know, take some that are in one spot and move them to another spot, that's basically just the, oh, absolutely. the same depth they were. Exactly. Yes, sir. If they've done well for you, I wouldn't change a thing. Be sure that you're putting them where they get good sunlight because that's one thing pretty much all bulbs have in common is they do need bright light to be able to come back from year to year. And not all bulbs do come back, but obviously you have a number of them that do, and those are certainly worth propagating and saving. I would go ahead and replant them immediately. If you um, if you break them apart or cut them apart in any way, leave them exposed to air where that cut surface will seal over for 24 to 48 hours before you put them back in the ground, where you're just moving them from one place to another, dig them up, move them, replant them, water them in, and... Uh, you know, wait for them to sprout right. and grow. Well, I guess like at the amaryllis, I only have one group. I have one plant now. It looks like there's there's three out there. Mm-hmm. So um, would, would that all be the same thing with the amaryllis? Since they're spring blooming, yes. I would. Uh, here's the thing about amaryllis. As a small bulb, amaryllis may have to grow two or three years before it becomes large enough to bloom. As a bigger bulb or as a clump of bulbs, it's probably going to bloom every year for you. So 
Um, if it is just, you know, a, a small clump where you think, well, gosh, there may be two or three bulbs down there, I'm probably going to leave those for another year, let those bulbs get a little bit bigger before I break them apart because I want to enjoy those beautiful flowers next spring. If it's a really big clump, uh, we've got, uh, oh, a, a plant uh, that we're going to have to dig and divide in an area that we're probably going to get 100 bulbs out of that is one of the spider lilies. So uh, kind of judge by the size, unless they are, you know, really quite a big clump, you're not really gaining a lot by digging and dividing, except that you can spread them out, perhaps plants to share with friends. But um, if you, you know, if you if you divide them, the smaller bulbs that haven't really reached full size, they may have to grow a year or two before they uh, are, are up to blooming size. But that, that's strictly up to you. You're certainly not going to hurt anything dividing them. You may just delay the flowering a little bit. Okay. Well, very good. I guess that's it for right now, Mr. Bob. You call me back whenever I can help you, Robert. And <laughs> have a good day in the meantime. Thank you, sir. All right, uh, next up is going to be Judy. Good morning, Judy. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, since your previous caller was talking about bulbs, I guess I'll start with that question. Okay. Uh, on the amaryllis, yes. I've had amaryllises for years and years, and they're green all year round practically, but they only bloom in the spring. And I've seen some in the neighborhood that bloom in the fall, too, and I think weeks ago you talked about them blooming twice a year and should i follow up should i separate them i mean i don't i mean they're just green so i just leave them there from all year round You're right. I, I don't know how to now, it, it would, and then how do i make them bloom in the it fall? would it would be very rare to have them bloom in the fall um oh. in fact it's kind of like getting poinsettias to bloom in the summer you can do it if you black cloth them and things there are some amaryllis like flowers there are some rain lilies actually this little one botanically oh. called rhodophiala that we call oxblood looks like a little miniature amaryllis uh oh. it's, it's and it's bright red and it just it, it would remind mm. you of a miniature amaryllis but it's not amaryllis um, and it is one that always blooms in the fall. In fact, they're in bloom in my yard right now. Mm-hmm. But your your true amaryllis, there are actually two groups. They're what we call the Dutch amaryllis or hippiastrums that are very large bulbs that are just marginally cold-hardy. You can't really plant them much north of San Antonio area. And then we have what they call the American amaryllis, which are very cold-hardy that I think is what you have and mm-hmm. they're basically evergreen, except if we get a real hard freeze, it'll freeze the foliage down. Uh, they come out and bloom generally about February, March, and they're absolutely gorgeous. There's a red one, there's a red and white one. But um, uh, those, if you want to dig and divide, now will be the time of year to do it and uh, replant immediately. But um, recognize there are two different kinds of amaryllis, plus there are this little fall-blooming bulb that looks like an amaryllis, but uh, it, basically all your amaryllis are just once bloomers, and it's always going to be through the winter and spring. If you have uh, the big bulbs, the hippiastrum and the Dutch amaryllis, we can kind of determine when they flower. We, we force them to go dormant um, in the fall. We stop watering. We let the foliage die back on them. And then we resume watering or replant or whatever about eh, five, six weeks before we want to have flowers. So if you wanted to have amaryllis on Mother's Day, you could get those big bulbs and just hold them. Just keep them in a dormant state until around, uh, 
you know, the, oh, say, early April or so and then plant them, and they would be blooming later than normal. But um, typically there are a lot of amaryllis sold um, beginning, oh gosh, October and even November that people plant to have in bloom for the Christmas season. But it's, I think everybody's just better to plant them and enjoy them rather than trying to time the flowering exactly. Okay. So I can just leave my amaryllis alone. They're fine. I don't have to dig them up. And my next question is on senisos, when is the best time to trim them? Uh, my son has them. They're real, real high and out of shape, and he's not trimming them. So <laughs> when's the best time to cut them back? The best time will be early spring. I like mid to late February. Okay. And one more thing. I have a, a wonderful, I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's what it was, pomegranate. It's about two or three years old. Mm-hmm. This year it bloomed a lot. Mm-hmm. But. It only produced like two pomegranates. It probably probably is an ornamental variety. There are probably ten ornamental pomegranates sold for, you know, every one of the productive ones. There's an old-fashioned one called Wonderful that produces a lot. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one I got. Wonderful. I hope it was indeed a wonderful. Uh, If it's a young plant, you should go to a much heavier production next year. But even the ornamentals, they produce one or two a year, but they're grown mostly for those mm. big old orange flowers. But if you have wonderful by next summer, uh, water it through the winter months, going to drop all its leaves. Right. By the way, beautiful yellow fall foliage. But huh. it'll drop its leaves, fertilize it fairly heavily, water it through the winter months. You should have plenty of pomegranates next summer. Okay. Well, that's what the label said, but you know, you, you never know what it's really wonderful. I, okay. It's a very frustrating thing in being in that business and seeing things mislabeled, but uh, hopefully yours is wonderful and you probably ought to get okay. at least 20 to 50 uh, pomegranates off that next summer. All right. Well, thank you so much. You're sure welcome, uh, Judy. <laughs> thanks for okay. thanks for the call this morning. Okay. <laughs> right now, back to the phone lines. Jenny is up first. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I you a few weeks ago, and I misplaced the paper uh, about my son's um, garden. He had solarized it, and right. now he's taking it off. What did you say to put in the dirt? Um, a little bit of compost. Uh, the only negative thing that solarizing does, solarizing goes a long way to kill any damaging weeds, insects, things like that. But unfortunately, it does have a negative impact on the microbial life in the soil. But we can restore this, you know, practically instantly with either compost tea or just straight compost. Uh, compost does so much for the soil. I just grab a bag of uh, good compost and... Uh, I mean, it could be the this new uh, top shelf, or it could be uh, the one from Nature's Creation makes an incredibly good bag compost. I just spread a bag compost around over the soil area where he had the, the solarizing going on, and this will put the, com- the uh, microbes back in the soil practically instantly. Okay, I was thinking there was two things you said, and I didn't remember. Well, (laughs) Well, water would be the other one and, of course, some good organic fertilizer. But the only thing that solarizing took away would be some of the microbial life. Now, some of the microbes, about 50% of them, have a dormant or resting state. They come right back on their own. But about half of them uh, can potentially be wiped out. But, you know, they reproduce so quickly. uh, Just a bag of compost, uh, good compost is all you're going to need to bring that soil back to life. Okay. And I told you that um, we ordered three of these uh, plumerias, yeah. one with blue and that. Um, 
they're in they're about seven inches tall. They're in about three inches of, of the oh what the cactus mix you said to put them in. And he said that two of them are kind of soft on the top. They were drying out so quickly that he was having to water them a little every other day. Mm-hmm. That's why the softer. What what can he do about the softness on the top? Chances are, it's just the fact that they didn't have many roots and they're not taking up water um, real efficiently. I'm not real concerned about it now. I hope they don't get, you know, mushy and watery. That would be a sign of like a bacterial problem or something. But I suspect it's just that these plants don't have many roots and uh, they are not going to really get the firm, hard feel that plumeria usually have until they get some roots reestablished. So I'm just going to water and fertilize and I'm not concerned that uh, they're not quite as plump and firm as usual on top. Did you tell me something we should fertilize them with? Was it the- I just use a good liquid fertilizer. Has to grow is certainly one of the most readily available. Uh, there are also some good Fox Farm products. Uh, there are also some good things from Espoma, but probably uh, has to grow plants going to be the easiest thing to find, and that's excellent for plumerias. Okay, and if they should get that mushy on the, the top of them, uh, then you then you cut off that section and you dust it heavily. Of all things, you dust it with cinnamon. Cinnamon is one of the best antibacterial things we have. But uh, I doubt that's going to be the case. But you call me back if it is. We'll talk about it a little further. So you told me that about uh, something that was going on with my desert rose with right. the cinnamon. I mean, that worked. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate your help. Always a pleasure, Jenny. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, uh, let's talk to James. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? I'm just looking forward to a little change in weather this week, but I'm doing well. How about you? Oh, just great. Uh, we're uh, getting cranked up and getting ready to do soil blocks for the spinach. Very good. And the, uh, and the lettuce. Excellent. Once it, uh, once it cools down to all the... Uh, the high 80s is, is going to be all right. Well, if the weathermen do anything right, they're saying by Tuesday, Wednesday, that's where we're going to be. So you're going to have your work cut out for you. Yes, sir. Uh, I had a question for you this morning. Okay. The uh, gold crops, can, can we plant them in an area where they're not getting a whole bunch of morning sun, but... Uh, after about 10, maybe 11, uh, they're getting uh, the rest of the day. Oh, they should, they should do fine. That, that's better than the reverse. I'd be a little concerned if it was uh, sun in the morning, shade in the afternoon. But shade in the morning, sun in the afternoon, uh, they're going to do great for you. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's about all I had for you. The uh, Lettuce and the spinach don't really like to germinate in hot temperatures. That's why we've been holding back to get the the soil blocks oh, going. Oh, I'm but, with uh, you 100%. And for some reason, the red lettuces seem to be even pickier about having some cool than the green lettuces. Uh, uh, my business partner planted some of the green lettuces, and they're they're bitter, but, boy, they're sure coming up uh, really, really thick. So uh, folks just need to realize you're not going to be even those little seedlings you thin out, uh, till it cools off, they're not going to be real good. But uh, 
Uh, you're right. You know, leaf spinaches and all, I think, are much, much better after it cools off a little. I, I think you would be better pleased with, uh, with greenhouses, et cetera, here in San Antonio than anybody else I know of. If you want to build your own, though, like I say, I'm going to cover the very basics of that um, in one of our Saturday morning seminars a little bit uh, later this fall. But uh, anyway, no, I I love my greenhouse, but I have to say it was I designed and created it. Southwest Exteriors uh, helped me out with the windows and doors for it. And, uh, man, their products are just superior. But, no, I I like my greenhouse very well, but it, it was definitely – I. I drove the nails and uh, screwed the screws and put it all together. It wasn't a kit or anything like that. So it was just a labor of love. And truly was. it. Uh, I used this new EcoVantage wood. I took advantage of all the mistakes I've made in the past. My first greenhouse I built was all the way back in junior high school. It blew down the first night after I put it up, and I've just gone on learning ever since then. <laughs> Well, look at the people who continue to do the same thing over and over each time expecting a different result. That's uh, Einstein's classic definition of insanity. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, my second question is, what is, I keep forgetting, what is the name of the of the mosquito stuff? We got 37 drops of rain the other day, and we in, acquired a gazillion mosquitoes. But there's that non-toxic stuff that used to only come in 55-gallon drums. Okay, um, it's um, it, it's called BTI, which stands for Bacillus thuringiensis israeliensis, and I don't know that they have started putting it liquid-wise in anything smaller. But you can buy it uh, as you know a dry material. Uh, one is called Mosquito Bits, and it's uh, about the consistency of old oh, red pepper flakes, like you put on a pizza, but it's impregnated with the BTI. You can also get it in the form of a little donut, which is uh, uh, with the mosquito dunks, and uh, yeah. those are effective. The other thing you can do if uh, if this is water that you're going to use uh, in the not-too-distant future, the mosquito dunks and mosquito bits, they last for 30 to 60 days or longer. But if you just go out there and say, man, i got wigglers everywhere, put a few drops of orange oil in there. That's not going to make your water unusable in any way, and the mosquito larvae will be dead oh, in a matter of a minute or two. I know several people that do this in bird baths or other places like that. So just a small amount of orange oil is not damaging. But uh, if it's like a cattle watering trough or a fish tank or something like that, then probably the uh, one of the BTI products is going to be the best way to go. Okay, so nobody has still been able to talk them into putting it into, you know, consumer-sized packaging. Hasn't happened yet, and you can thank our wonderful government for that, along with many other things. It's the labeling issues, uh, Texas Department of Agriculture and USDA. It just, it's a very expensive proposition because everything has to be recertified. You would think that since it's already been done in the bulk product, it would be just a matter of, printing a new label, but um doesn't work that way with oh, government. No. they got to figure out a way to get some more money out of it. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Okay, Bob, we'll have a great weekend, and I look forward to lower temperatures next week, and I bet you do too. <laughs> That's an understatement, Candy. You have a wonderful week as well, and uh, I'll let you know when we're going to do that greenhouse building seminar. I appreciate it very much, Bob. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, next up is Mike. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm good. How about yourself? 
Well, it was 69 degrees when I left 46 and 31 this morning, so it felt great. <laughs> well, I hope it's 59 in a couple of days from now, but 69 is a real good start. So great. Uh, I got a quick question on rosemaries. I got a lot of them in my yard. It's about the only thing the deer don't eat. Mm-hmm. Um, the, a lot of them are planted in like rows, like shrubs, uh, like hedges. Okay. And in several areas, I've got like one or two, and that's dying off, or turning brown. How long have they been in there? Oh, 15 years. Yeah, that's about the life expectancy of rosemary. And when they get stressed, and they're certainly stressed with uh, summer's heat and drought, um, you're going to lose some of them uh, just regardless of, of what you do. As I'm sure you know, there's both an upright form and what we call a prostrate or trailing form. Uh, both of them 12, 15 years. It's kind of like a, you know, an elderly animal or plant of any sort. Just something comes along that stresses it where a young plant might perk up and come right back out of it. Case of rosemary, when they start looking bad, you probably, I hate to say it, probably think about replacing those. Do water thoroughly every 10 days or so. A little fertilizer is great. But at 15 years old, you're going to lose a plant every now and then, and uh, you can replant right in the same area. Nothing wrong with doing that. Can I do it? Can I plant them now if I pull them out? Is it, is it okay to plant them this time of year? Oh, absolutely. It's the best time of year to plant them as long as you can water because uh, they'll sure. grow roots all winter, and then they just really take off in the spring. And uh, okay. don't forget that foliage is dried out, can certainly be harvested and used for its herbal qualities or um, if you're, you know, trying to repel deer, uh, just, you know, kind of crumble all that stuff up and throw it around other places where you don't want the deer. Don't, don't just dispose of it. Even a dead rosemary has a lot of different beneficial uses. Right. And then last question, I need to plant some grass up at Kingsland, um, for some areas that got damaged in the flood last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, late October okay to do or should i wait till the springtime to plant carpet grass what what are you planning is carpet grass st augustine you want to plant right okay uh you can do it 365 days a year but remember that it's going to require very frequent watering if you're there to water it on a daily basis tomorrow would be a fine to re- time to replant it or october november <laughs> i might be a little hesitant middle of january if we do turn out to have a colder winter but uh uh, the secret is having somebody there to water because you'll be watering daily for a little while to get it established. Uh, planting in the winter months, I do recommend putting down a little whole ground cornmeal because the grass seems to come from the turf farms with a little bit more of that brown patch fungus embedded, but that's easily controlled. And uh, uh, if you hate mud as much as I do, you'd like to have some grass down there. So plant it whenever it's convenient for you, Mike. Very good. I do appreciate the help, as always. Well, it's always a pleasure. Always good to hear from you, sir. And thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. Back to gardening. And let's take a couple of minutes here and talk about what just might be the most important dinner uh, for everybody, but especially if you're a young mom, if you're planning a family, if you're a grandmom uh, in charge of nutrition, uh, I think this Friday night's going to have something for just about everybody, Diane. What do you think? Well, that is a great segue. So have you ever wondered why so many people are getting sick with chronic conditions? Mm. 
Do you worry if harmful poisons and secret ingredients that make it from the fields to your tables are impacting your long-term health and well-being? Right. What could happen if you remove the secret ingredients from your kitchen? Well, Secret Ingredients is a must-see documentary for anyone who has a wide range of deleterious medical conditions that could be attributed to these chemicals. And it uncovers how you can get healthy and stay healthy despite hidden hazards in our foods. So if you come on Friday night, you can find out what happens when one family gets healthy after removing the secret ingredients from their diet. It's just amazing. And, you know, I'm just constantly amazed about that. Uh, how naive so many people are, and they think, oh, if there was anything wrong with it, the government wouldn't be letting them spray all this stuff on their crops, and we know what a bunch of hooey that is, and it <laughs> seems to me like it's getting worse instead of getting better, and uh, I know a lot of the research you've done, a lot of the testing that's been done showing the incredible level of not only glyphosate, but a lot of the other crud on what comes off the grocery store shelves, uh, uh, it's just a really neat film, and this is actually uh, a follow-up to uh, what was also uh, kind of one of the initial exposés of the toxins on our food. Exactly. This is the follow-up to Genetic Roulette. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be uh, Friday, October 11th from 6 to 9. You'll show up at 6, and you'll get an amazing dinner prepared by Farm Table. Without any secret ingredients. Without any, yes, it's organic. It's a their award-winning kitchery with seasonal vegetables and garnishes. There's a awa fresca and tea bar, and there's dessert family style. And their food is absolutely delicious. After you eat, we'll be showing secret ingredients and follow it with a roundtable discussion with some amazing experts and some Q and A. And so you'll leave with a full belly. And also we'll have handouts. You'll get pamphlets and information sheets on how to take what you've seen and and take it into your everyday life and how to shop and how to to eat. And even if you want to learn about soil health, there'll be some experts there on that. So it's only $25. You can buy tickets either online at P-H-A-R-M-E. T-A-B-L-E, farmtable.com, go to their events section, or you can call in and buy the tickets that way at 210-802-1860. Now, here's the catch. There's only enough seats for 100 people. So it would be a good thing to do sometime today. It would be a real good thing to do sometime today. There's still seats available, but I just don't want people to be disappointed. So if if you said yes to any of those questions I started out with, this is an amazing event for you to attend. Well, and it's just kind of shocking. It's so eye-opening and uh, um, just such good information. And like you say, you've got people there to, that know the answers to the questions, but uh, that can point you the right direction, just small steps to a, to a better future. And uh, um, I just can't think of anything more important to us in good health and the good health for our kids and grandkids and things like that. And uh, obviously the government's not going to do anything about uh, this problem anytime soon. So it's up to us to, to enlighten ourselves, to educate ourselves. And uh, this Friday night would just be a real great start. And, and this movie's not going to be in theaters. So... Yep. Um, Let's let's get these tickets sold out, and I can't wait for the event on Friday the 11th at 6 o'clock at Farm Table. That's, uh, that's this Friday, and uh, farmtable.com, P-H-A-R-M, 
or give a call at 210-802-1860. Diane, thank you for a little of your time this morning. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye-bye. Goodbye. It really is a, It really is very, very educational, and um, I just can't tell you how much of a difference it can make. Some people have a higher immediate sensitivity to a lot of the stuff that's on the food, and uh, you know, a lot of people that tell me, oh, I'm, you know, I'm gluten intolerant, blah, blah, blah. They get on a good organic diet, and they find out that, no, that did turn out not to be a problem at all. So if you're interested, if you really want to learn, it's this Friday evening. And uh, having said that, let's get back to your questions. Yolanda, Lynn, Sean, and Clint, and Yolanda is first. Good morning. Yes. Yes, good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? I'm very good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good, yes. Um, I have three uh, different questions. Um, the first one being on my pomegranates. Okay. Uh, trees, they didn't do very well this past year. And um, so I would like to ask, when's the proper time to cut them, uh, properly uh, cut and trim, I guess, and can I cut some of the tops off? You can. You know, pomegranates really don't make so much trees. They make grow as kind of a big old multi-trunk shrub. The main thing that happened this year was just a severe drought. Pomegranates were very happy in the spring and very unhappy in the summer. And uh, they do make a huge plant. What I like to do is cut back some of the big, long growth and leave some of the other growth without touching it all. Because anytime you prune, you are to some extent going to be limiting your flower production, which is going to mean fewer pomegranates come summer. Um, but, uh, again, I think the best time is early, late winter, early spring, mid to late February, I think is about the best time, but try to take out some of that really high growth, leave some of the r- lower growth totally untouched. So you'll still get some good, uh, pomegranates this year. Okay. Uh, thank you for that. And then, um, trimming the trees, um, we're wanting to cut some of the lower branches. When mm-hmm. would we... When is it safe to do that? Anytime after 9 o'clock when I go off the air, unless you're coming to our seminar this morning, in which case it would be any time after noon. Now, you can do it any time. Remember that with live oaks and with red oaks, it is important to seal the wounds. It's totally unnecessary on all other trees, but uh, um, you can pretty much do the trimming 365 days a year. I was pruning some... uh, over at the nursery myself just this week. Uh, so whenever it's convenient for you and you can safely do it, go for it. Okay, thank you. And then uh, my last question is on my pecan tree. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't gone out there to really look at it. I did send you uh, an image of it. I don't know if you got it or, or not. Uh, Wendy but, hadn't uh, shown me yet, but I will certainly look at it when we do get it. Okay, uh, I've had it out there for... I want to say about 10 years, someone had given it to us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's been in the ground. And I went out there and I looked at it, and it, it was leaning, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe 25 degrees. And I uh, had this, now I've discovered, because I kind of Googled, what is it? And it's a, a stem gurgling branch. Okay. I guess is what you call it. Well, it'd be more likely a root girdling mm-hmm. issue. And that can be a problem. I, I wouldn't think that that would account for a leaning tree, but that's one of the reasons we talk about keeping the root flare exposed and why we talk about, you know, we sometimes when we plant, you know, we actually split the side of the root ball. We try to, you know, never have a real big tree in a real small container. 
But uh, if you do have a girdling root, it needs to be cut and at least partially removed. Um, uh, the the tool that your arborist uses is basically going to be a sharp chisel. But believe it or not, it can actually create so much pressure that when you cut that root, it can you know kind of shoot out at you with some force, kind of like you know stretching a rubber band and then breaking it. Those ends can kind of pop out. So if you do it yourself, do it very, very carefully. Otherwise, get a good certified arborist to uh, take care of that problem. And I don't know that it's going to correct a leaning issue, but your tree will certainly be healthier if you take care Mm -hmm. of girdling roots and expose that root flare. Okay. So if you do get that image and you see it, uh, would you be able to respond just to let me... Now, did you send it to Shades of Green SA? Dot com. Yes. Okay. I'll. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I Wendy, one of our managers, is one who usually checks that, and I haven't seen it yet, but I'll certainly take a look at it. Okay. All right. Well, I certainly appreciate for all your help, and you have a wonderful morning. You do the same, Yolanda. It's good to talk to you. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Certainly. All right. Uh, Lynn is up next. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning. I have some questions for you about okay. tree variety. Okay. I wanted to, to plant some trees. And uh, I visited the pecan house up in Fredericksburg and got to actually taste a bunch of different pecans. Mm-hmm. And my, my two favorites were the Cheyenne and the Pawnee. But do they grow well uh, here? I live in southwest Bear County. If you have deep soil, they should do very well for you. Uh, pecans okay. are, those are two, obviously, the Indian varieties. Uh, and they, you know, they, they are certainly trees that should do well for you here. Um, and flavor is going to vary a little bit depending on the year, depending on the moisture. So um, I, I, they're just, there are a lot of good pecans out there. I would add Mohawk to that list. Uh, I would add Choctaw to that list. The only one of the Indian varieties I would stay away from is one called Wichita, which seems to be more susceptible to pecan scab fungus. But so long as you have deep soils and are able to, you know, water thoroughly and regularly when we get into as bad a drought as we've had this summer, uh-huh. they should do beautifully for you. Okay, great. Yes, we have very deep soil out here. It is, Lucky it's you. Slightly, I know. It's <laughs> wonderful to dig in. It is a little bit sandy, so uh-huh. I'll have to just keep it watered. Now, we have some native pecan trees. Right. And we don't have to do anything to them. Uh-huh. Is there, uh, with these uh, improved varieties, uh, is there anything I'm going to have to do that I won't be doing to the natives? Well, of course, um, you will water thoroughly and deeply. It uh, takes years for a pecan tree to truly become fully established. But uh, other than fighting the squirrels, no, you're, these, right. these varieties are probably going to be grafted onto you know, a native pecan rootstock, uh-huh. so they're going to be just as hardy and just as trouble-free. Um, now, I tell you that, you know, it, it. if you, when you start out and you're really deep watering and things like that, your trees become a little dependent on you, and they're going to be more affected if you don't continue watering when we get into a real droughty period, which is just part of life and South Texas, but pecan trees yeah. are among our, our most dependable trees out there. Um, I can't see, you know, your, all, all what you have in native pecans, but it may very well be that if you wanted to, you could uh, get with a pecan grafter, and he could actually graft some Cheyenne or Choctaw 
onto some of your native trees as well as, okay. you know, planting some new trees. So there are lots of ways to uh, upgrade your pecan grove, so to speak. Okay, great. And then I hear you talk about the satsumas. Mm-hmm. I've, ne- I've never actually tasted one. Are, are they a form of tangerine? Yes, they are. I was going to say, if you've eaten a, if you've eaten a ta- tangerine, you've probably eaten a satsuma. Uh, the newer okay. varieties are more flesh and less seed. Uh, some of the old-fashioned varieties, Changsha was uh, the first one that was really widely grown, and it had about 30 seeds in every fruit. But the uh, newer varieties, uh, Miho, Sito, Kimbro, all these uh, tend to be lower on seeds, more on flesh, and absolutely delicious and very, very good or your area. Okay, and and they will go down into the 20s without needing uh, freeze protection? Probably even into the upper teens. Okay, great. And I've heard you tell what fig varieties, but I didn't write it down. So if you could tell me that again, that way I'll have it. Well, some people are concerned about the little fruit weevil that can get in figs. I've never found it to be a problem. But uh, um, if you are concerned about that, Alma and Celeste or Celestial are two varieties that form a little bit of a rosin right there on that open end of the fig. And uh, that's okay. what a lot of, uh, that's what your extension agents all recommend. I'm very fond of, well, gosh, there are, I, I like the Texas Everbearing. I like the White Everbearing. Um, if you wanted a really, really big fig, a lot of people like this new one called LSU Purple. And uh, it's not okay. as cold hardy, but where you are, it should do fine. But I haven't found a fig that uh, that I would call a bad fig. I, I just like the everbearing because you certainly get uh, a longer production period on figs. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. That's good to know. And I was given some pot plants, and I have them outside, and I discovered they have some blind roaches in them. Uh-huh. What should I use to to kill those critters just good old diatomaceous earth okay it has just to stay dry to work top. sprinkle it on top water them first because uh when you water de it's going to lose its effectiveness so give them your regular watering and then just sprinkle de on top you know around the base of them if they're in saucers a little bit of it okay. in there but de is very effective in killing roaches and very safe Okay, fantastic. And speaking of watering and using a liquid fertilizer, uh, I have very large pots outside. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this may be like too detailed or whatever, but I'm curious about should I go ahead and thoroughly water those pots and then give them a good dose of the dilute has to grow? Or is that the wrong order? Well, that's that is certainly an okay thing to do. Um, I would if if I watered first, I'd probably you know wait late wait and do the has to grow the next day. I quite frankly right. just because has to grow plant does not burn. I just mix it up and water thoroughly with it, and uh, um, it's more time than I have to try to water everything and then go back and fertilize. Right. I tend to do it all at once. Okay, so so by. But if it needs more water than what I'm giving, you know, with the has to grow. Well, just, so one of the big pots I'll use like about a gallon of the has to grow. But if the pot needs more than that, should I water first and then do the has to grow like you were saying? No, nah, I probably like, I probably do the has to grow first and then water. Okay. Okay. That's what I wanted to see. Thank you so much for your help. You're I appreciate welcome, it Lynn. so much. My pleasure. Thank Bye-bye. you. Goodbye. 
All right, back to gardening. Uh, by the way, I just got a text from Howard Garrett that he is on the road headed over to do a talk at Archie's Garden Land for those of y'all up in the Fort Worth area that listen. But uh, we're going to pass on, um, he said he just uh, is doing so much, he couldn't take time for our usual visit. So we'll get our uh, our 30 minutes with Howard uh, Garrett next week, the Dirt Doctor. But we'll just go right on with uh, with phone calls right on through that 8 o'clock hour like we, like we usually do. So back to the phone lines, and it is Sean's turn. Good morning, Sean. Good morning. Good morning. Call, I've been wanting to know, I have a sago palm, a really large one, probably mm-hmm. uh, 25 years old, and I think it's a chefalera that's growing over the top of it. And every, in the spring when I want to trim it, that's about the time it's blooming. When is a good time to trim the chefalera back? Okay, I doubt if it's a chefalera. Chefalera is not hardy unless you're calling me from Brownsville. Um, yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't, it would be unusual to have a chefalera. Uh, but it, you know, unless it's in a very, very protected area, um, as yeah. far as pruning chefflers, I, you know, I, I certainly they can get big. The standard ones grow 30 feet tall. Even the dwarfs grow 10 or 12. You don't want to prune during the winter months because, um, the new growth that comes out will be much more spindly, not nearly as strong. I think the best time for pruning a chefflera is any time from about April through about August. I would not hesitate to prune any time there. Okay. I need to find out what it is. It it's kind of looks like a pecan leaf in a way, but I, I don't know. I thought it was like a chef, some type of chefflera or that family. Uh, it, it would be unusual outside because, um, you know, they would they would almost certainly freeze and die unless it's in an extraordinarily protected area. But... Uh, uh, clip off a little limb or some, uh, you know, leaves, bring by shades of green, take by Fanix, uh, one of your better nurseries in town. We should be able to tell you what it is, um, <laughs> on the spot, so to speak. Okay. Well, thank you. Now in general, unless it's a flowering plant, uh, best time to prune is, um, early spring, late winter, sometime around, um, oh gosh, end of February, 1st of March. That's going to be the ideal time to do your pruning. Thank you very much. You are certainly welcome. Thank you for the call this morning. Uh, Clint is up next. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How you doing? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Oh, pretty good. Just got a couple questions uh, for the divine area. Would the red gold or red chief nectarine do good? Um, I would have to look up the chilling requirements, but I... Most nectarines are higher chilling than peaches. Most of the nectarines are, you know, 800 hours and up. Um, and you're going to be looking for about a 600 to a 650 hour. So uh, uh, I'm. you don't see a lot of nectarines uh, much south of San Antonio because they're higher chilling requirements. But having said that, um, without, and I don't, you know, carry that little book with me, but... Uh, uh, go online, look for chilling hours, or call Fanix There, I'll, almost certainly will know. But uh, if it's if it's above, ah, gosh, if it's above seven hundred, seven hundred and fifty hours, I think it's going to be iffy as to how much production you would get from it in divine. Okay, good deal. Yeah, uh, the, I got the, some problem with my red. With your red? Go ahead. No, I was no, going to say some red oaks. I have a little troubles with. And what are they doing or not doing? 
Uh, they seem to be dying from the outside of the leaf in going into the main vein. I don't know okay. if they got too dry at once or yep. the iron in my well water sprinkling them is giving them a hard time. Iron shouldn't bother, you know, too much sodium could be a problem in some of our well water, but that sounds to me like just drought. That's what that's what every live oak on my ranch is doing right now, and it's just having gone for uh, several months now with very little rain. Live oaks or red oaks are much more drought tolerant, but when you combine a 100-plus degree heat with no rain at all, you start seeing a lot of foliage damage, and I'm pretty sure that's uh, that's all you're looking at right now. Not going to change much this fall. I would be watering where you can, but when things come out next spring, I you know that's the time we really need to look and see if we've got uh, marginal damage on the new leaves, and we might want to test the well water. But what you're describing to me sounds a whole lot more like just drought damage. Well, it was like five times the amount of iron. Yeah, iron is just not toxic um, in most forms. Uh, there's sulfur and some other things uh, may be, but uh, uh, for plants, I don't think I've ever seen any problem called by a, caused by a surplus of iron. Now, iron is generally you know, not in a free form. It's tied up with some other radical it's ferrous or ferric, something or other, but um, unless it's uh, unless it's a sulfate, I doubt that uh, that's going to cause any damage at all to your trees. Okay, well, the grass sure loves that high iron because it's usually pretty green throughout the year. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's a very good thing. So. Okay, well, I appreciate your time. Well, good luck, and uh, I'm going to be broadcasting over at Phoenix tomorrow. I'll try to check out that nectarine for you, or uh, you can call them today, 648-1303, and I imagine Mark or Mike can tell you immediately what the chilling requirements. And uh, if it's under 750, go for it. If it's over that, I'm afraid it's going to be uh, difficult to get it to produce. Okay, and your uh, that email address was shadesofgreensa.com? Uh, shades, uh, let's see, no, it's organic, uh, or, O-R-G-A-N-I-C, organicsog.com. And I do hope you're planning to come over for our free seminar this morning, <laughs> Fall Revival. No, we're not going to have a tent revival or anything like that, but if your yard is like most yards in South Texas, it could use a little help going into the fall. And that's what we're going to talk about, everything to get your plants healthy and growing, best way to get them uh, doing well through the winter months so they'll put on a great new burst of growth next spring. But uh, if you want to know how to get beyond the hot summer damage that pretty much all of us have had, we're going to talk about a lot of different things this morning. Absolutely free of charge, no reservations, just come on over. Coffee will be on by 9. Uh, we start seminar about 9.45 and... Uh, uh, if you've never been to one of our seminars, I think you'll find it very useful, very informative, and, of course, absolutely free. Uh, back to the phone lines. It's going to be John, Estella, and Steve. And John's up first. Good morning, John. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Um, I have a your question that I need to ask you about. Um, I, some of the, uh, we, we've got a real bad phone connection, John. Uh, repeat that one more time. A few years ago, I bought okay, fair, uh, much better. Uh, a couple of uh, the, I don't know what size they are, four by four by five feet tall or six feet, yeah, five feet tall probably, of those water catchment containers. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And put one in a, a lousy location, and 
have let it sit there for years now without doing anything at all with it. And was curious, the water that's in there, is it good to go ahead and use after sitting for four years? Oh, sure. Yeah. I don't, uh, I, it's going to not have a real good flavor to it. I don't think I'd use it for drinking water. But your plants, yeah, your plants are going to think it's wonderful. There's uh, nothing, uh, nothing adverse about that. Now, you know, things like rainwater contains sort of a magic contains an energy that it picks up when it falls. All of that has gone away over the years. Sure. But uh, the water that's in that tank is is good or better than anything you're going to get out of a well or out of a saw's hydrant. So, uh, uh, by all means. <laughs> Go go ahead and use it, and uh, and your plants will and be very thankful it. for it. Yeah, <laughs> use it, move it, and uh, get on with life. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good deal. Um, the second question: I had a a uh, plastic border around my garden. We we talked about this a while back that you had done that, put plastic three feet wide around yeah. your garden, yeah. and it got brittle and everything, and was tearing up, and in places. Um, I'd had long strands of St. Augustine that I hadn't cut back mm-hmm. that were out over it. So I just stuck those, when I pulled it up, I just stuck those in the soil there, mm-hmm. um, and watered it. And <laughs> St. Augustine has done wonderfully there, but <laughs> I need to get my border back and uh-huh. wondered if, is now a good time to transfer? I've got a few spots out in my yard that where I need my water. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, I, I would. It's a good time to transplant it or I, wait until spring. I would transplant it. I'd wait a week till we supposedly get into the cooler weather, but uh, no reason to wait till spring. Uh, fall is a great time to do it, but uh, we're looking at 90s the next day or two, and then we're looking at 70s hopefully. So uh, um, I'll get you off the hook for this weekend, but next weekend you're probably going to be transplanting St. Augustine. Great. All right. That's all I needed this week. John, I appreciate the call. You have a great Thanks, weekend. Bob. Thank you, you sir. Bye. Goodbye. And let's just get back to the lines. Estella is first. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question that it's for the fungus on the toenails. Yes. I think I heard you said to use cornmeal, but I forgot the, how you fix it. Well, it's uh, it's a matter of mixing just a little bit of water with the cornmeal uh you don't want to really make it a liquid you want to make it more kind of like a oh just a, like a paste or a slurry uh you soak the affected foot hand whatever uh for about an hour a day for a week's time then wait about a week or two and go back and do it again for another week and it uh, this effectively kills the fungus, and then your nails just gradually grow out, you know, with a much healthier tissue. Uh, you don't want to use the so-called baking cornmeal because they've taken away the very good part of the corn. You want to get what they call whole ground, or if you get it at HEB, it'll probably be stone ground cornmeal. This has all the good stuff in the cornmeal, which grows this beneficial fungus, which is what's going to knock out your toenail fungus. It has to be an hour that you... Uh, just, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, it just takes time to work in and go to work on things. So uh, when I need to do it, I just usually do it in the evening. If I'm going to sit and read a little bit, I just... Uh, uh, you oh, can yeah. actually get those uh, uh, at the grocery store. You can get those, what they call loaf pans that are shaped like a loaf of bread. That's just perfect because that's 
kind of way my foot just fits right into it. And um, you can use the same batch for several days. I'd stick it in the refrigerator so it doesn't get too, uh, uh, as the kids would say, too gross, which you <laughs> will do. But, uh, yeah, do it, do it every night for a week if you can, then take a couple of weeks off, then do it every night for another week, and that should uh, totally control it with, uh, without any of that liver-killing stuff your doctors want to give you. It's funny, the people that come around the nursery and ask me most about that are, are mainly doctors who don't want to take the medications that they're given to their patients. So I think you're a very wise lady. You think about doing it a different way. Yeah, and you said make sure that it's not watery, just like a paste. Yeah, just, I mean, a little watery is okay, but you don't want it like a liquid. You want it, uh, uh, and, and over time, it will absorb. The cornmeal will absorb a little bit of that. So if you're using it for four or five days before you make a fresh batch, uh, you probably need to add a little water to it a time or two, but uh, you, you just don't want it like a swimming pool. You want it to be just a just a nice, uh, uh, fairly liquidy paste, but just not just not real liquid. And it's the stone stone ground or whole ground. Um, it doesn't have to be from the grocery store. You can get it from a nursery or feed store. But this uh, the baking cornmeal they have polished away. They've taken away the best part of the cornmeal, which is what grows that beneficial fungus that helps you. So none of this baking special, but HEB has what they call stone ground that is just ground up corn, and that's what you're looking for. Okay, well, thank you so much. It's always my pleasure, Stella. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, uh, Steve is up next. Let me push the right button. Be Steve, and then he's uh, Steve, and then Lee, and then he's L. Got to get him in order here. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. I have a young I have a young tree. Uh, I guess my first question, does the Monterey oak, does it produce acorns? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it has to be uh, about five years old before it starts producing acorns, but uh, it produces sort of a medium-sized acorn. It's not as big an acorn as, say, a bur oak. Uh, it's a little bit bigger than a native live oak, but, uh, yeah, it, it'll make acorns in lots of them. Okay, well, uh, this is a young tree. It's probably about a three-inch base. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, the leaves just turn brown. They've been brown. I've been, you know, I'll, I'll about once, about twice a week, I'll really water it really good. And the leaves have not fallen off, but I've broken some of the little branches off, and they're just they're just dry as they can be, and I I don't know if the tree is dead or not, or if it's alive. And I, how do I tell if it's dead? Well, obviously, if it doesn't come back out, it does not sound good. When leaves yellow and drop, that's not necessarily a bad sign. But when they turn brown and stay on the tree, um, that's that's a very bad sign. It's. Uh, um, I, I'm seeing some of that where, you know, fairly young trees just didn't get enough water over the summer. Uh, most of the established uh, uh, oaks that I'm seeing, you know, they may be showing a little bit of damage. But uh, uh, at this point, I'm, I'm not real... Not not real encouraged uh, by the fact that the leaves have turned brown and stayed on the trees. Um, 
you you may want to wait a month or two before you put a new tree in just uh, for just to let it cool down a little bit. The one thing you can do if there's any life left in that tree uh, every day, take your hose and just spray up and down on the trunks, on the limbs. Uh, if it comes out, it's probably going to come out from the base. I think the top of the tree is uh, sounds like it's done for for me, but. Um, uh, you can try, if you like, just spraying all over the tree with moisture because it can, if it's got any life in it, it can absorb through that smooth bark. But uh, if first of November rolls around and you haven't seen any re-sprouting from the base, I think it'd be time to be thinking about a new tree. Okay. All right. Thank you, Bob. You have a great day. Well, I appreciate the call, and uh, you do the same. Uh, Lee Ezel, and I've got somebody else calling in one of those lines. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, Bob. Morning, uh, sir. Question of, got a question about cottonseed meal okay. as a fertilizer, particularly in a vegetable garden. Uh huh. My grandfather used to use it uh, all the time, every year. Yeah. Had always good luck with it back in the 50s and 60s when I started gardening. I started using it with good luck. But now I'm a little concerned about uh, even considering or calling it organic as much as the cotton crops have been sprayed the last several years. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right. And uh, I can tell you, you know, a number of years ago when I worked with Alton Grimm, who's one of the best nurserymen I've ever known, but uh, Alton and I mixed our own potting soil using Cottonburg compost. And we got a batch came in one time that still had... Uh, so much herbicide, and it killed about 300 roses that we potted up in it. So um, I'm, I, I would want to know where the cotton burst came from because they spray so much defoliant on there, and now that they're doing some of the genetically modified cottons, I'm, um, I, I would be reluctant to use it in my vegetable garden. I'm, uh, if, you've, if you've got a bunch of it, uh, maybe use it on the grass or somewhere like that, but... Uh, Unless it is organic, and I've not seen a certified organic uh, cottonseed product, uh, I'd be a little reluctant because it is one of the most heavily sprayed crops that's out there. Yes, sir. That's uh, pretty much what I was thinking. And, uh, I've, I've always had good luck with it. You can still buy it fairly reasonably in yeah. 50-pound bags, but uh, it's, it doesn't sound like it's worth it, so I guess... Uh, well, that pretty much answered my question. Well, I appreciate it. I, it is funny you bring that up because I was when I drive in uh, at four o'clock on Saturday mornings. I listen to the outdoor show here on KTSA, and they had a new advertiser, you know, advertising all this cottonseed cake as deer feed and things like that. And that's what I was just thinking. I'm thinking, man, I wouldn't be feeding my deer all the crap that's probably left on those cotton burrs. So. Uh, I'd, I'm like you. I'd, I'd keep it out of the uh, garden. Uh, if you want to stay away, and, and I use some manure-based fertilizers. I think they're just fine. But if you want to go with a more natural product, uh, there are some great new alfalfa-based products like this Nature's Creation Fertilizer they call Premium Lawn Food. Uh, is also great in the garden, and it is uh, very pleasant smelling, and it's plant-based like the cotton burr compost. And uh, uh, if you're looking for another good plant-based uh, fertilizer, that would be that'd be ideal to use. Well, I look into that because I used to buy alfalfa meal, yep. but I cannot find alfalfa meal. I can find a little pellets, the small yep. pellets, but I cannot find the meal anymore. So. 
so I might look into that. Well, it's it's good stuff. If anybody could find the meal for you, uh, call Fred Morales down at Morales Feed. Uh, Fred spends more time out researching new products than anybody that I know in the feed business. If it's out there, I'll bet he could find it for you. But uh, those pellets, uh, uh, they are, you know, they're they're obviously good for feeding all the different animals that they make the pellets for. But they're also a very good fertilizer as well. Yes. Okay. Well, that answers my question. I'll uh, try to get a hold of Mr. Morales. Uh, you'll enjoy visiting with him. And I appreciate the call, Lee. You get out and have a good weekend. Hey, thank you, Bob. Thank Bye. you, sir. Bye. All right. Let's get back to gardening. Here's going to be Ezel, Bill, and Richard. Uh, let me get here where I can see there. There we go. Uh, good morning, Ezel. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm doing very well, thank you. It's uh, going to be a good Saturday out there. Yep. It's still going to be a little bit warm, but waiting for the cool weather. <laughs> well, at least we have, and I hate to trust the weatherman because I've been disappointed so many times, but uh, hopefully they'll do a good, better job of forecasting the temperature than they have of the rainfall. And if they're right, by about Tuesday morning, we're going to be much more comfortable. I hope so. Yeah. Um, I have a couple of questions on a couple of trees. Okay. Uh, one of them is a white orchid. And the other one is the uh, Mexican olive, the wild olive. Okay. Uh, I, I was uh, I was in the valley this past weekend, and uh, the, all the olive trees were just beautiful. They oh, were yeah. Blooming, yeah. And all the petals were falling off. It looked like snow on the ground. <laughs> um, and then um, I, I know that they'll grow in San Antonio, parts of San Antonio. But what I didn't realize when I started investigating is that the deer like the olive trees. Okay. And so I was going to ask you about uh, date the leaves or just the fruit or, 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 you know, do they have to be protected from the deer? Or? It really kind of depends on where you are. I mean, if you're in, you know, Hollywood Park or Fair Oaks Park. <laughs> and where in Timberwood Park, yeah, yeah. you're probably going to want to protect them at least to get them started. I think once they get up, once they stay in an organic program, um, they are not going to be as attractive. But I have to tell you, you're really pushing the northern limits of the uh, of the so-called Mexican olive. It's not an edible olive, obviously. The genus on it is called Cordia. And occasionally, we get cold damage on them in San Antonio, Hollywood Park. I mean, uh, Timberwood Park. Um, you're, you're looking at having to do some winter protection or they're probably going to freeze and die on you one of these years. So, uh, if I were planting one up there, I'd be putting it on the south side of my home or my garage or building where it's going to have a little bit of protection from that cold north wind because, uh, like I say, you're just right at the northern extreme and, uh, but they are beautiful. I love the Mexican olive and, uh, uh, they do make a true tree. Now, the so-called white orchid tree, Bohenia congesta, um, it is more of a bush than a tree. I've seen it growing well as far north as San Marcos, so I think you would probably do pretty well with it. I don't know about, um, you know, how deer tolerant it is. Um, I, I just haven't tried it uh, in the hill country yet, but uh, I would certainly protect it if you decide to try that one. I would protect it as a young plant. I suspect 
as a mature plant, the deer are not going to be that interested in it. But it's uh, it's not something I plant in Dallas, but I think it would have a better chance of making it through the cold probably than the Mexican olive would. Right, and I was I was thinking uh, on the Mexican olive, uh, planted on the south side, facing south, but mm-hmm. uh, about maybe 10 feet from the house, or should yeah. they be closer? Oh, no, it's... That should be fine. Uh, I, I just want to make you aware of it. It might not be a problem for the next 10 years, but I'd hate for it to turn into a beautiful tree and then you not recognize we needed to protect it if we get one of what my grandfather used to call a blue norther because people have gotten a little complacent. They've forgotten how cold it can get in South Texas. And uh, one of these days we're going to have a really hard freeze and a lot of people are going to wake up uh, with some unpleasant surprises. So um just just be aware that you're 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 way up north from that tree's perspective and uh it may need some protection i if it were me and i were going to plant one i probably would wait until march or april to do it rather than plant it this time of year when it's not going to have a lot of time to get those roots established before we get whatever cold is coming would that also apply to the uh the, the uh white orchid it would, not as much so. I wouldn't, uh, I think it'd be better to plant in the spring, but uh, if you have access to a pretty one, I'd, I, I wouldn't let it stop me from planting this fall. But uh, the Mexican olive, I very definitely would wait till spring on. Right. And and, and uh, a couple of quick questions on fertilizing now. My my hanging baskets, my potted plants, when is the last time, though, especially the one that I'm going to put in my greenhouse, mm-hmm. when is the last, uh, the latest that I should fertilize them? About 8 o'clock because it gets dark after that. You never stop fertilizing. I'm joking with you. You never stop fertilizing. Those plants are used to growing year-round, and um, um, you fertilize 365 days a year. Uh, cool weather fertilizing is sometimes in some ways more important uh, than fertilizing in the summer months, so don't ever stop feeding. You'll do it a little less often. You'll do it about half as often in the winter as in the summer, but uh, don't, don't, stop, don't stop feeding okay well those are my questions well thank you so much great questions good luck with it and let me know what you decide on these it's always good to talk to you i see now going to be richard bill and pam richards next good morning richard yeah good morning mr bob good morning uh, i got a question got a question about uh arizona ash okay it uh i went out the uh, day before yesterday and i all different spots the leaves are just dried up and are they're dead okay arizona ash is a shallow rooted tree that really suffers from drought um you rarely see a tree die but when they get drought stretch you will have you know bigger limbs and things like that you'll have a lot of little spots in the foliage die out so um i be you know putting a sprinkler out around that drip line or um, really pretty much over the entire root zone of the tree. Your your Arizona ash is just getting deeper, dry deeper than it can tolerate. If you are not able to water it, uh, you could eventually lose the whole tree, but you're just looking at drought damage is all that is. So it'd be better just go ahead and water then, okay? Absolutely, thoroughly and deeply. Tree's probably going to look worse before it looks better, but you know, watering could be life-saving for it now. All right. I appreciate that, Mr. Bob. I listen to you all the time. A first-time caller. Well, you call me anytime I can help, Richard. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. 
Okay, uh, next up, try and take these calls in order is what I keep looking at the board up there for. Bill is up next, and it'll be Pam and John. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing this fine day? Uh, it's just, it is indeed a fine day, and uh, you know my saying, every day is a good day, some are just better than others, but now that it's cooling down a little bit, I if, if somebody just let it rain, then I would have nothing at all to complain about. Hey, that cooling down's a myth until we get out of these 80s and 90s. <laughs> well, they're they're telling us Tuesday, so you know me, I'm the eternal optimist. I'm going to hope they're right uh, this time, but I'm I'm not going to count on it until I see it. I'm certainly not getting out uh, my uh, my long pants and long sleeves yet. I hope you're right. Hey, I have a couple of quick questions. First, uh, one of my friends gave me a plant that she called a mother of thousands, and I understand that's a form of calancho. You're exactly right. Okay. I wanted to put it outside where I have some of the other calanchos and succulents, but I was worried about those little pups or chicks or whatever they're called on the leaf tips that fall off at the lightest touch. Are they toxic to the puppy dogs? No. No, they, now they're not cold hardy. They're going to have to come inside for the winter months. But yeah. uh, I, I've never heard of any toxicity from any of the clonchos. And uh, um, the little, like I, I call them little plantlets uh, that fall off. Gosh, anything that tiny, I'm, I'm not going to be concerned about that. And I love my dogs better than I like a lot of people, all politicians and some of the people I, out there. <laughs> so, no, I, I don't think there's going to be any problem at all. Okay, and... and it's an exotic-looking plant and absolutely gorgeous. I assume those little plantlets regrow because in transporting it, I knocked off a bunch of them. <laughs> you just lay them on top of the soil, and 99 out of 100 of them will grow roots. And, uh, you know, sprinkle them with a little water every now and then. But that is one of the most, it, you know, evolutionarily, that's one of the most successful plants in the world at reproducing itself. And... Uh, it's one of those things that be careful. Warn your friends if you give them away as to what they're getting. They're they're not they're not invasive like going to be a deep rooted weed or something like that. But they're one of those plants that they ban at the uh, plant exchanges at some of the flower shows and things because everybody in the world has one. Anybody that has them is probably not looking to get any more of them. So you enjoy it. And actually, they do bloom. They have kind of an interesting salmon orange flower when they mature but uh, they are prolific to say the least i've heard that and i've heard when the uh, plant blooms the mother plant dies and uh, then you've got all the little babies that'll take its place well it's not the the mother plant goes into something of a decline but it's not like a bromeliad that's going to die completely uh, a okay. few of the colachos um, do tend to just kind of the little plants just dominate and outgrow. But, uh, no, the mothers of millions that uh, um, I have seen and grown, I don't have any now, thank you. I don't want any more right now, thank you. <laughs> but uh, I've, I've not seen to be flowering to be the end of that plant's life. Well, I'm keeping this one in a pot on a concrete patio, so I don't think I'll have to worry about the plantlets overtaking my backyard. I doubt that very much. But do remember to bring it in. Even a light freeze can be damaging to it. And uh, 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 just don't don't leave it out and then wish you wish you hadn't. I shall. I'll bring it in. Uh, what's the, the temperature to which I should be worried or, or below which I should be worried? Well, frost will damage it. And you can have frost anytime temperature gets to about 38 or so. 
But uh, basically, if the weatherman says 45, I always, you know, add potentially five degrees to that. So if they're talking low 40s, I'm probably going to bring it in. If not, uh, if it's not convenient to bring it in, at least for those light freezes, you can take a chunk of insulate or, you know, one of the other uh, row cover type products, put over it, anchor it, and that'll get it through probably down to the middle 20s. But uh, um, again, just easier bringing it in if you can, and I'd be looking at low 40s as my cutoff point. And she has it in a rather small pot for the size of the plant. Is that an issue? Should I think about repotting? It's not an issue really with any house plant. Being root bound does not hurt that kind of plant. What you will find is that the more root bound it becomes, the harder it is to keep it watered because it simply yeah. uses water so much more quickly. So uh, either if it gets too top-heavy or if it's too hard to keep it watered, that's the one and only time I'd be moving it to a bigger pot, and I'd be using a looser potting soil, probably something like cactus and succulent mix would be perfect. As far as keeping it watered, on some of the plants that I have that are in pots where the water tends to just flow through very quickly, mm-hmm. I've usually uh, just grabbed a handful of ice cubes and put them on the soil so they melt and slowly uh soak into the soil is there any issue doing that no perfect way to do it okay and the second question i had is more about when to plant some trees i'm thinking getting a satsuma a meyer lemon and a mexican lime i know the the two best times were probably 10 years ago and <laughs> today right um satsumas uh, is, is there a month that's best um satsumas i now is fine there's really never a bad time Realize that Satsumas are cold-hardy probably down into the teens, so I'm not concerned about planting them this time of year. Myers Lemon will get hurt at about 26 or below, so it, only if you have a very protected area am I going to put it in, a, in the ground at all. I think it's better to keep it in a pot. Mexican Lime is almost mandatory to stay in a pot because that one is like your Calancho. It's going to be damaged by frost, so uh, it's not cold-hardy at all. And considering you're going to keep the lemon and lime in pots, you can plant them any time. But uh, Myers lemon, some people put them in the ground. If I were going to do that, I would certainly wait till March or April to do it, and I would have a very protected area that I was planting it. If I were to put the uh, lemon and lime in a pot, uh, what's the smallest pot I can reasonably get away with so that uh, transporting it is not a back-breaking venture? <laughs> well, for now, um, you know, maybe a, uh, oh gosh, biggest I would say for the first two or three years you'd need is maybe a 16-inch pot, about a 15-gallon container. Um, ultimately something whiskey barrel size, but they make nowadays some very durable, very well-made plant caddies, plant dollies, whatever you want to call them, uh, that are easy to roll around. So it's not like lifting and moving. Not a big fan of the old fashioned whiskey barrels because they fall apart after a few years, but, uh, um, there's some relatively lightweight, uh, pots, even some of the fabric pots, you can slide around even if you don't uh, lift and carry them. But uh, and starting out, I'm going to say about a 15-gallon container. Somewhere down the road, they're probably going to, the uh, the lemon at least, is going to go up into a, a 30 or 40-gallon container, which is going to be about 18 to 20 inches in diameter. On those big pots, I've uh, lately been buying the uh, white food-grade drums. I think they had... Uh, 
soft drink syrups in them that you can find uh, that are relatively inexpensive, and I split mm-hmm. them horizontally and end up with a couple of you know, 20-gallon pots for sure. 10 bucks. Well, the one thing about white plastic, it's the worst out there about depolymerizing. It gets brittle more quickly than just about anything else. You're probably good for five years, but uh, after that, I'm afraid you're going to find they become very brittle and very hard to move without breaking. So great place to start, but uh, for whatever reason, when they make white plastic, it is just much shorter live than some of the black plastic uh, products are. And I picked the white thinking it would be less likely to generate heat out in the sun. Oh, yeah. It's uh, your root. Your soil will very definitely stay a lot cooler, but um, it it is not as durable. Um, it, and that may not be an issue to you, but uh, you're much better off, actually, to take a black pot and paint it white than to go with the okay. white plastic just because of the stability issue of the plastic itself. Okay, and I wonder if those blue rain barrel type affairs would have any less uh, UV issues than the white. Uh, yes, definitely less. Well, I might try that. Uh, when you get into big pots, they get very pricey or can. And I'm looking for, <laughs> oh, yes, they, they can. But I'll tell you what, if you're looking for probably the best value out there, uh, find yourself a farmer rancher that buys the uh, molasses cake uh, in that yes. big old tough pot. Those things... You know, you can probably get all you want for five bucks a piece, and some people will give them away just because they want to recycle rather than throw them away, and those are excellent pots for plants. We've got a rancher that leases property from us, and uh, those tubs are laying out there. I'll go pick some up. They tend to be kind of shallow. Um, It depends on the brand they're buying. There are some uh, uh, different products out there. In fact, I see a lot of them that have probably 42-inch sides on them, there are some real shallow ones, but they, they put a bunch of products in something that's about 42 inches high, and uh, that's as big as you probably want to deal with. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll look, and if he doesn't have any, I might just buy some of the molasses cake and throw it out for the <laughs> animals on the ranch and keep the tub. That's a good way to go about it. You have a Thanks wonderful weekend, Bill. It's my pleasure. You as well. Thank you, Bye. sir. Goodbye. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines, and Pam is up first. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm sure you've answered this question a hundred times, and I can't remember. Well, let's make it 101. It probably needs to be answered. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We have a crepe myrtle that is um, covered in black moldy something. Right. Right, what it's it is mold growing on aphid poop, to put it as politely uh, as I can. Um, your crepe myrtle has had, may still have aphids on it. Uh, they leave a sugary excrement on the leaves, on the stems, and then there's this black mold that uh, grows on it. Now, aphids are a sign that the plant is stressed. Uh, it could be from the drought. It could also be crepe myrtles are probably the single plant that gets most often planted too deeply in the ground. At some point, you need to go out, and you should actually see the trunk broadening out. You should see the first big roots of the crepe myrtles right at ground level. Many times, you have to dig down several inches to find that, but when you do, your plants just start getting better the next day. I mean, just getting that, as we call it, just exposing the root flare you do that, you usually don't have aphid problems. But um, at this point, 
I don't know, if you want to spray a little spinosad soap, this will take care of the aphids, take care of that sugary stuff. It's so late in the season, your grape myrtles are going to drop all their leaves uh, here in another 30 days anyway. So I'm not going to be trying to wash the leaves off. I mean, you can spray them off with hose and make them look a little bit better. But there's no way those leaves are going to get good looking again. So uh, I'd probably just use a little spinosad soap to kill off the aphids and uh, let the trees, let the grape myrtles drop their leaves. And they'll be absolutely beautiful when they come out next spring. But I would I would look at exposing the root flare because that causes more stress issues than just the aphid problems. And I bet you that 98% of the grape myrtles planted wind up too deep in the ground. Okay, great. They'll we grow better, they'll bloom we'll better, and uh, have fewer problems once you get that root flare exposed. All right, thank you. You're sure welcome, Pam. Thank you for the call this morning. I appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Bye. All right, uh, next up is Vicki. Good morning, Vicki. Hi. Hi there. Hi, How are you today? I'm fantastic. Good. How about you? I'm doing okay. Good. I have a new yard. Well, we've been there four years, uh, the floor cam, and I use all organic stuff mm-hmm. to answer a problem. But seems to le- at least twice since we've been there and the yard's been planted, we have that the black mold fungus that makes kind of the circles in there. Okay. And I do the cornmeal uh-huh. um, and the compost on it. Is there any way to prevent that from from happening? I mean, that usually, you know, I guess it's in the in the winter when it starts. Right. Like. Um, do you use how do you water? Do you have a sprinkler system or? I, I do have a sprinkler system, but then because I do have, we left quite a few trees, uh-huh. which is real fun mowing around all <laughs> of them. But we prefer that. Right. And they're mesquites and cedar elms. They're the ones that were there mm-hmm. and. Um, so I have to fill in with sprinklers, you know, in between places because it misses it because of the tree. Okay. And uh, do these spots show up under your mesquites more than anywhere else, or are they throughout the yard? <sighs> you hadn't thought about that. Uh, yeah, I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. Well, uh, the reason I ask is mesquites, especially when we make a yard tree out of them, I mean, they... They're not as bad as cedars. I mean, the old hill country cedar would just fold up and die if you start watering it real regularly. Mesquites tend to, oh, golly, what is the word, fumopsis or something like that. They tend to actually drip sometimes the material out that creates a big, you know, this blackish area in the grass. And I would look carefully. I would not be surprised if the problem is not necessarily a problem with the St. Augustine, but it's something that the mesquites are creating out there. So take a careful look at that. Other than that, um, the things that you'll do to prevent fungus problems is try to, you know, not water overnight, water early morning. I mean, it can still be dark, but limit your watering to early morning. Floritam is the most drought tolerant it's the toughest of the saint augustines out there and um uh, of course you know as you say you're staying organic but um uh with your watering be sure that when you water you're watering very thoroughly very deeply 
and then not watering again. I mean, I see people watering their St. Augustine briefly three or four times a week. That's entirely wrong. It's one of the things I'm going to talk about in my seminar this morning, as a matter of fact. But be sure that when you water with a sprinkler or with your sprinkler system, that you soak it really, really thoroughly, but then don't water it again until it's dry an inch or so deep. But you look around, if you see any of this stuff show up this winter, I would not be at all surprised if it's not something that's coming from the trees rather than the grass. So get back to me on that. Okay. Another question I have is I have a rose garden, and it's done okay for the last, I mean, maybe the first couple of years. And I guess maybe they're getting too much shade because they're, like, getting real, they get real tall and spindly looking. Uh-huh. That's a shade issue. Yeah, that's a shade yeah. issue. and. Nothing to do but trim the trees, remove the roses. If you choose to move the roses to a sun, to a sunnier area, uh, January, February are going to be the best time to plan that exercise. And roses are very transplantable. If the plants are still in relatively good shape and if they're varieties you like, uh, I would put mm-hmm. sometime around the holiday season, I'd put it on your calendar to move them. Just remember that a rose's root system can never dry out. You want to be absolutely certain that you have the new hole dug, that you move the plant, replant it, water it in with no pauses in between. But, um, yeah, other than trimming or cutting down some trees, you're going to need to move those roses to more sun to have them do well. Well, that's probably going to have to happen because, like, eight <laughs> feet away from it is a pecan tree that we planted, and it's beginning to really take on real good. So uh, I'll have to figure out something else to put in that. Well, there are... Yeah, there are lots of other pretty things, but roses just aren't one of them. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure, Vicki. Enjoy your show. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, Sarah, good morning. Good morning. I have a question. I have a a large lantana in a rock garden that does get um, a sprinkler system, you know, um, moisture. And when can I um, cut that back? Because some of it, I mean, this is a real thick lantana where it looks like branches. <laughs> <laughs> my, I'm laughing because my business partner was in thinning out things in her garden, and she found a lantana that had grown a stem along the ground about six feet, and it was just basically trying to take over the whole corner of yeah. her garden. You know, it's, um, and what color are the flowers on this one? It's uh, multicolored. Okay. It's, um, it's pink, yellow, um, it's multicolored. Probably one, well, there are two or three varieties there. But this is one of the bushing types that frequently suffers at least some freeze damage in the winter. Emulsion, it always comes back. But I would either wait until it is frozen back for the winter. Uh, If it doesn't freeze back, then the very best time to cut it back is early spring. Now, if you need to do some minor trimming on it, you can do that 365 days a year. But if we were to cut it back real heavily right now and it stays warm for another six weeks, it's going to try to sprout out. And then when it freezes, it's going to suffer a great deal more damage. So this is the one time of year that I would never do any heavy pruning. I would put that off for spring. But if it is just out of hand, if it's just in the way, yeah, you can go ahead and cut it back a little bit right now. But the heavy pruning should be just as it starts to come out, just as it starts to put on new growth in the spring, whether it freezes back or not. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, you're certainly welcome. Good question. And uh, that variety is probably uh, probably a variety called Anne-Marie. If you're trying to uh, match it, there's another one out there that is... Uh, 
Oh, golly, called Irene is another real pretty, those multicolored ones. But uh, they're among my favorites. I think you find it, as you have, to be a very, very satisfactory plant to enjoy. Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.